I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever forgotten the real purpose of something? For the past week, I've had to re-examine everything that I've believed. Uh, I have to re-examine almost every single motive and purpose of everything that I do. Uh, just last week, um, my, my Megan's uh, brother, uh, or I guess my brother-in-law, but her brother, uh, our sister-in-law, and our niece flew into town for Elena's wedding. Now something, or maybe two things, and if you actually gave me the time, maybe like a million things, uh, but I, I was just limited to two. But the two things about my niece, Peyton, is that she's incredibly cute and also incredibly inquisitive. Uh, Peyton's at the adorable age of three and a half, and she has the lovely knack of asking why to everything that I do. Uh, Boo, why do you have to do your hair in the morning? Uh, Boo, why do you write with your left hand? Boo, and she calls me Boo, by the way. Uh, Boo, why are you wearing that shirt? Boo, why do you shower in the morning and in the evening? Uh, Boo, uh, why are you wearing glasses? And most of these questions were questions that I was not prepared to answer simply because I've never just had to question my motives. It's just things I just did my entire life. And I suspect that for the rest of you guys, it's pretty similar. Uh, if I had asked you, what is the real purpose of, of something, or, or showering even, how would you answer that? What is the real purpose of finals? Uh, what is the real purpose of studying? How, how would you answer that? Maybe for some of you, uh, you've forgotten the purpose of showering, that it's really about, like, you know, personal hygiene, uh, rather than making sure that others, you know, will sit next to you uh, during lunch. Although, I will add that those two things are not mutually exclusive, um, and so please, like, shower for the sake of showering, uh, and also for others, too. But have you forgotten the real purpose of something? This was a question that the Corinthian church wouldn't have even thought to have asked themselves. In fact, from what we've discovered so far in the, the past nine or ten messages in 1 Corinthians is that the core problem of the vi- divisions occurring in the Corinthian church was that their divisions had grown out of a profound forgetfulness of who they were as God's holy people. It was as if God, as if Paul had asked them, what do you think church is really about? And from, the, from, and from from three and a half chapters that we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians, I think it's safe to assume that they thought that church was all about um, popularity, prestige, status, self-interest, values that were entirely consistent within their surrounding culture. 
But it's as if the Apostle Paul shines the light on their behavior and conduct, and he calls them to reconsider what the church is really supposed to be about and invites them to reconsider and to see themselves and the world in a dramatically different way, in a way that is shaped by the Christian story. Because as we saw two weeks ago, they have the mind of Jesus the Messiah, the Spirit of God that is dwelling in them, which is what leads Paul to say what he does tonight. Um, I've said before that um, the Apostle Paul uh, two weeks ago had laid his sharpest rebuke for the Corinthian church, but I think he has proved me wrong because I think this passage by far is the harshest that we have seen yet. Because in our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul is going to challenge us to consider what the church the local gathering of God's people is really about. And so the key idea for um, tonight's passage is that a, a people centered on Jesus the Messiah must remember what the church must not be charmed by and what the church must be founded on. Take a look at your first point. The church must not be charmed by status. Now, most messages that I've heard uh, on this passage have divided their sermons uh, according to three different points, okay? According to the analogy that you see, or the analogies, rather, that you see in the passage, um, a field, um, a building, and a temple. Uh, but I decided to take the harder route and the road less travel, which is typical of me. Um, but if you are a careful reader, you may have noticed that the Apostle Paul uses three different kind of metaphors to talk about God's church. Again, a field, um, a building, and a temple to symbolize who we are as the church. Now take a look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now with this verse, the Apostle Paul is circling back to what he had said earlier in chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. If you turn there really quickly, actually, in verse 10 it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, if you remember, we discovered that the original cause of divisions in the church was because of how the Corinthians had idolatrously divided themselves amongst the leaders of the church. And I did warn you guys that we're going to be talking about divisions for like four chapters. And so here it is again. He brings his arguments into sharp focus. Notice how in verse 5 he says, what rather than who? Now that's a weird and incorrect, actually, uh, grammatically incorrect way of describing people. Like when you don't know someone, you don't say what is Seth or what is Sammy. You say who is Seth or who is Sammy. But that's precisely the point. The point that the Apostle Paul is making here is that the Apostle Paul is actually depersonalizing himself and Apollos. Rather than putting himself or Apollos on a pedestal, he depedestalizes them. When the Apostle Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He emphasizes not so much who they are in the church, but what they do for the church. And what are they? They are mere servants of the Lord. Now, what's the point? Well, if if Apollos or Paul, who were extraordinary ministers of the gospel, were only servants of the Lord, what does that mean for, for us? 
This church, this text serves as a reminder for all of us because I think it's fair to say that all of us are tempted to follow popular and celebrity individuals. A quick survey of the people that you follow on Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, I think will prove my point. And if that's the case, then is it possible for celebrity culture to seep into the sacred gathering of God's holy people? Could it be possible for this high school group this church to objectify their leaders and not just their leaders, but also their friends, the very people that are sitting next to you. A couple months ago, I had, um, I had overheard a group of people at Lighthouse raiding the pastors of Lighthouse, all in good fun, of course, <laughs> uh, as if they were different entrees at a buffet. Okay. Um, they mentioned that the preaching of this one pastor is like rice. You know exactly what you're going to get, but it is a complete staple. You just need it. Uh, they mentioned that the preaching of this other pastor was like seafood. And, you know, like seafood, you know, you bring it out just occasionally on special occasions, of course. Um, and then they, they compared uh, the preaching of another pastor to chicken. Okay. And sometimes you like chicken and sometimes you just don't like chicken. And on and on they went. But when our church starts raiding their pastors like that, then that is the beginning of the end. Because that is exactly how divisions start, do they not? Could it, be po- could it be possible for us to objectify and put the pastors of Lighthouse on a pedestal? Is it possible to have even a little bias toward the leaders in our church? Toward, toward the leaders in our junior high group? Toward the leaders in our high school group? You see, the problem with the Corinthian church was that they were charmed by the very same things that surrounding culture were charmed by. Why were the Corinthians tempted to revere Apollos or Paul? It's because for the Corinthian Christians, outward appearance, image, popularity, and status were everything. Precisely because for the Corinthian culture, outward appearance, image, popularity, status were everything. But if Apollos or Paul, who were arguably the most influential people in the early church and foundational to the establishing of the early church, If they were only servants of the Lord, what does that make everyone else in this church, its leaders, and the people sitting in this room? There can only be one person who is great in the church, and it's not us. We are merely servants. And calling himself a servant of the Lord, the Apostle Paul wants us to reimagine how we reevaluate people and to reevaluate prominence and status. Never mind the leaders or pastors of our church, but who are the people in this high school group that you are tempted to dismiss? Who are the people in this high school group that you are tempted to exalt, to objectify, to put on a pedestal? Who are those people? What the Apostle Paul reminds us here again in this passage is that we must never be centered on the men and women in our churches, let alone this group of high schoolers here. We must never be charmed by the most talkative, the most charismatic, or the most good-looking. Which is why I'm so skeptical of Christian conferences and, and camps and retreats. Not because of the good that it can provide, but because of the danger that it often perpetuates in its attendees. Like, look, 
I have, I have personally benefited from a lot of the big name pastors and speakers and all those other guys. But when you start planting your flag and say that I am all about this pastor or I only listen to sermons from this other pastor or I'm all about this small group leader or I'm all about this person or I'm all about this camp or retreat, a.k.a. Mount Hermon, you end up forgetting what the church is really about, which is why the Apostle Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. You know, I appreciate that some people at Lighthouse address their pastors as pastors. Um, I think it's a sign of respect, and it also gives a, a sense of weight of an authority, and so I, I'm, I'm by no means discouraging it, okay? But here is an interesting Bible fact. Nowhere in the New Testament do you see an individual other than Jesus himself being given the title of pastor, Paul isn't called Pastor Paul or Peter, uh, or uh, nor does nor does Peter call um, uh, you know Paul Pastor Paul, uh, nor does Paul call Peter Pastor Peter. When Peter addresses Paul, he doesn't call him pa- Pastor Paul or, or even Apostle Paul. He calls him Brother Paul, because pastoring first and foremost is a verb, not a noun or a status. Jesus actually says something similar in uh, in Matthew chapter twenty three. He says, "But you are not to be called." Rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no authority structures in the church, and this also doesn't mean that you shouldn't call your your, your dad's you know, dad or whatever. All that the Apostle Paul will be talking about in the next chapter is spiritual authority. But the point that Jesus is making here is that leaders are fundamentally servants. We are simply servants of the Lord, no less and no more. Just to show how foolish it is for us to stake our ground on people, the Apostle Paul challenges us to consider just how dispensable the leaders are. Take a look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, I don't think our English translations do a good job of translating verse 6. It's important to note that Paul actually shifts the tense here. When he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, all, they all sound like past uh, tense actions. But what the English doesn't really show is that it isn't just that God gave the growth as if it was a one-time thing but that God is the one who keeps on giving the growth. The kind of growth that that God gives is ongoing, even though God's servants have been long gone. In other words, people come and go, but God remains forever. Paul and Apollos come and go, but God keeps on sustaining. The important people in your life will come and go, but God is the one who remains the same. Your pastors will come and go. Your, your, your youth pastors, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a new, another youth pastor coming in to take my place. God forbid, like, if I get the chopping block. Uh, anyway, uh, your youth leaders, youth camps, whatever, your friends will all come and go, but God is the one who remains the same. It's as if God sets an ex- expiration date on people, on his servants, just to show how unimportant people are. And how foolish it is to place your hope in people, um, 
just an illustration. A couple days ago, Jesse and I, if you don't know, if you don't know who Jesse is, he's my brother-in-law. Uh, Jesse and I were talking about what would happen to Lighthouse, um, a church of around 900 people, um, if something had happened to Pastor Kim or Pastor Gav. Who would take over? It's an interesting question. And he was saying about saying how if he and Eric Lau, the the only other full time pastor at Zoe now, uh, Zoe the church uh, in Texas, uh, just is a church of I think three or four years now, and so they just don't they don't have that many pastors as Light, Lighthouse does, and so him and Eric are the only full time pastors there. And he had said um they had if they had gotten into a fatal car accident, God forbid, uh, the fact that the two of them were in the accident together at the same time in the same place is just a sign from God to show just how unimportant they are to God's growth and functioning. The world will keep spinning and God's mission will still keep carrying on with or without them. Which is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 7. He says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is what? Anything. But only God who gives the growth. But at the same time, This is where the Apostle Paul also puts differences into its proper place. While the Apostle Paul is careful to make sure that no one ever idolizes and pedestalizes certain individuals, he's also careful to point out that we should never demonize and dismiss the the usefulness and effectiveness of certain individuals as well. People are on the one hand dispensable, but also on the other hand, actually indispensable. Take a look at verse 8. He says, He who plants... And he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Notice how he says that the one who plants and the one who waters, while different, are one. They are equally essential and vital to the flourishing of the whole. You can't have 10 million different planters and no waterers. And in the same way, you can't have 10 million different waterers and no planters. And I want to just glean uh, one simple application from this. I'm going to talk just briefly to the youth leaders for the next couple of minutes. Uh, But high schoolers, I want you guys to pay attention because I'm actually talking a little bit about you guys. Youth ministry leaders is not the easiest job. If you talk with the staff from Beacon um, or the staff from Praxis, of course, uh, they're going to have their challenges. But they will almost always talk about how it is a blessing for their students to come on a Friday night or on Thursday evening that want to actually be there. That will actually sit through traffic to want to grow, to sit through sermons. Now, I'm not saying that this is true of you high schoolers, um, but just these, these, these college students are willing to make the drive out, to be there, to, to grow. And you, and actually, I have, uh, I actually have a lot of complaints about college students and even young adults <laughs> who have, uh, you know, who are actually just glorified college students. They just have a, um, expendable in- income now. Um, and I will actually take 50 self-entitled high schoolers than one self-entitled college student, for sure. Uh, or even one self-entitled young adult. And for the leaders, I, you might be tempted to think that serving another ministry might be easier. But there is a little secret that they are not acknowledging. College ministries and young adult ministries can be what they are precisely because of faithful seed-planting youth ministries. I don't know if you guys get that. But college ministries and young adult ministries can be what they are because of faithful, persevering, seed-planting youth ministries. College ministries and young adults uh, and, and young adult ministries are plucking the fruit of your labors, 
of the countless hours that you spent praying for these high school students. And if you are not praying for them, you really should start. They're plucking from the fruit of the labors that you've spent meeting with them. And if you're not meeting with them, you should probably start too. But I was listening to this story about how this one pastor um, had attended a seminary where this really well-known and skilled professor had taught. And at the seminary, he would teach um, year-round beginning Hebrew courses. But the advanced operative courses, he would teach uh, only uh, once every four years. And so it was a really big deal when uh, he taught upper division courses. Uh, and so this pastor had enrolled in the course, and he was absolutely mind-blown by this Hebrew professor. Uh, he was mind-blown by what he had learned, and he was so shocked that he only, that he only taught beginner classes, uh, beginning Hebrew classes so regularly, but upper division classes so rarely. And so one day he went in for, um, for uh, office hours, and he said, Professor, you are an amazingly gifted professor. Why do you teach beginning Hebrew so regularly when you can focus that time on upper division courses? And the, the professor was, of course, flattered, but he said this, Alex, it won't even matter that there are upper division courses if the foundation is not good. By teaching the beginning courses, I am actually ensuring the success of these students when they take upper division courses. This is why we do youth ministry, youth leader. There is no more foundational ministry. I think it's more foundational than children's ministry. There is no more foundational ministry than the youth ministry, which is why I love all you guys right here. Therefore, we do all that we can to ensure that these precious high schoolers will have the most solid foundation, while at the same time trusting that God will grant the growth. The point that the Apostle Paul is making here is who cares whether one is the planter or the waterer when God is the one who ultimately gives the growth. We are merely servants of the Lord. And this means that we are not responsible for the growth of of our high schoolers. We are held responsible for the quality of our work, as we'll see in a few verses later. But God does not hold us accountable for the growth of our work. Now take a look finally at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In one single verse, the Apostle Paul mentions God three times. Why? It's to show that everything emphatically belongs to God. Your pastors, your leaders, your friends, your church. And what does this mean? What does that mean? Well, let's, just, let's just think about that for a second. If everything belongs to God, and that means that you belong to God also. If everything belongs to God and you belong to God, then that means that everything, by virtue of that fact, belongs also to you. Everything belongs to you. It's exactly what Paul says in verses 21 and 23. He says, so let no one boast in men. Why? For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. If we belong to God and therefore all things are ours, what need is there for us to boast in men, to stake our ground in people? Why are we charmed by status? I'm running out of time, so that concludes my first point. Second point, second point. I have like three sub-points. Second point, the church must also be founded on the Messiah. The church must be founded on 
the Messiah. Paul now moves from the analogy of a field to a building at the end of verse 9 to the first half of verse 10. He says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. And as you know, as you, or as I think you, sh- you should know, the Apostle Paul is the chief architect. He's the main planter that started the Corinthian church. Okay, He was there for a year and a half, and um, he started, he, he preached the gospel, he discipled these individuals, um, he brought them to faith, and he was there for a year and a half, and obviously we know that he had left to go to other places to preach the gospel and to do the same thing. And so what that meant that was that he had also installed other leaders to take his place. So that's what the Apostle Paul means when he says that other builders have laid on top of his foundation. Okay, But obviously, as we know, uh, Paul didn't spend the rest of his life in Corinth. Okay, There are other leaders like Apollos who come in. And now many commentators believe that builders refer to the church's leaders here while the building refers to the church's members. But that doesn't really make sense, because in verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, now if anyone, and in verse 13, he says, each, each one, and in verse 14, he says, anyone, and in verse 15, he says, if anyone, and then in verse 16, he says, you. If the, if the builders referred exclusively to the church's leaders, it wouldn't make sense that the Apostle Paul refer, uses the word anyone or you. You guys follow along? Does it make sense? Now, what's the point? Well, it's because Paul is now removing the spotlight from the church leaders, and he is now focusing the spotlight on the church individual, on the church member, on every single one of you guys. And what he's going to do is he's going to introduce three dangers that will actually destroy the health and unity of the church. The first danger is that the first danger that will destroy the church is bad is a bad foundation. A bad, a bad, a, blah, 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 a bad foundation. Excuse me. Take a look at the last half of verse 10 to 11. Let, let each one of you take care how he builds upon it. For no one can, can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What will destroy the unity of this high school group? One way that this high school group, that this church is destroyed is when we disregard the foundation and base the foundation of our youth group on something else or someone else. When the measure of our high school group is on the values that are consistent with the culture. When we, when the measure of our high school group is on our preferences. When our high school group is founded on how cool or on how uncool people are or how un, or how funny or not so funny our leaders are or how applicable or inapplicable the messages are. When we care more about who we are associated with, that is what will destroy this high school group and church, because as great as those things are, that is not Jesus and Jesus crucified. Maybe what's subtler and more insidious for for you is that you think that Jesus is the foundation of your life, but in reality, he's really not. We can go to church, we can read our Bibles, we can serve other people, we can even say that we're Christians at school, but Jesus really isn't the center of your life, but merely an accessory. We can have a Jesus playlist on Spotify, we can listen to a lot of sermons on the radio, Uh, we can listen to podcasts, we can play sports, quote-unquote, for Jesus. We can have a He is greater than I t-shirt, but He is still not the foundation of our lives. We can even do church and yet still not have Jesus at the center of our worship 
because our preferences or our friends or our comfort are still front and center. But when Jesus isn't, everything else in our lives will eventually crumble. I was listening to the testimony of this guy named uh, Beckett Cook. It's a great testimony. I'm actually going to um, uh, email it to you guys in our newsletter. Um, but Beckett Cook, uh, Cook he, he worked as a set designer uh, in Hollywood. Uh, all his friends are the famous producers and directors that are running the industry of Hollywood today. And uh, he had... He had the connections. He had, he had money. He had experiences. He had dinner with Meryl Streep. Uh, he would go to um, the late prince's house for like concerts that would play till three in the morning, uh, which I find kind of hard to believe. Uh, but anyway, he would go to the Emmys. Uh, he would go to the Oscars and attend all these award shows. Uh, he, and he knew all these different people. And for nine years of his life as a set designer in Hollywood, he was living his best life. But one important trip to Paris for a fashion show uh, at an after party where people like Virgil Abloh, uh, Kanye West, if you don't know who these people are, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Uh, but they were there and he was sitting at a table alone on top of a balcony and he was on top of this balcony. He was looking over everything that was happening. People were having fun. People were partying. People were drinking. Um, and as he, as he stood, as he took a step back and as he evaluated everything, it was almost like he had an epiphany. He realized that all that he had founded his life upon was not enough to prop up his life. There were diminishing returns on all the things that he had heard, seen, and experienced, and they were not able to keep him going, only to realize that his entire life was built on sinking sand. In his own words, he says, I am at the top of the world, and yet I am lonely. Which is why the Apostle Paul in verse 11 calls us to take care how we build upon foundation. Because sometimes all it takes is a dip in our grades to see if our lives are really founded on the promise of God or on the promise of success. Sometimes all it takes is no one noticing or appreciating how much you do for other people to see how much you really value the approval of God or the approval and praise of other people. What foundation have you built your life upon? What foundation have we built this high school group upon? The second danger that will destroy the church is bad materials. Bad materials. Take a look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, and it ends there, uh, the Apostle Paul now shifts from the foundation to the material that is built upon it. If you are a Christian, it's because someone has previously laid the foundation for you. Someone did the planting and another did the watering. There is someone in your life, maybe uh, a pastor, maybe your, your, your parents, uh, maybe even your small group leaders. Uh, there is an individual who had laid the foundation of the gospel in your life. And the question that the Apostle Paul is now asking, turning to you, is how are you building upon that foundation? You see, the problem isn't that things were being built on top of the foundation. That's not the problem. The problem was the kinds of things that were being built on top of that foundation. When Paul says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hood, uh, wood, hay, straw, he is separating two different kinds of material. A material that is imperishable, gold, silver, precious stone, and a material that is perishable, 
wood, hay, straw. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that some of us are building upon the foundation with materials that are useful and long-lasting. But some of us, maybe some of, maybe most of us here actually, are building upon the foundation with materials that are useless and will perish. Why? Take a look at verses 13 to 15. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test it, will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, many, uh, much ink has been spilled over these three verses. Like the Catholics had thought that this, they had used this passage to justify purgatory, uh, which is incorrect um, and really wrong. Uh, because when Paul, Paul uses the word day here, he uses the, the second coming. What he actually means with the word day is the second coming of Jesus in judgment, not working your way out of death. And others have said that genuine Christians can't be judged for their deeds. Uh, because it contradicts faith in Jesus, which is also wrong because we can't let our theology override what scripture says. So what is actually going on here? Now, just to be clear, God is not judging us for our sins. All of our sins have been completely judged and atoned for on the cross where Jesus, the crucified savior is hanging on the cross. God has completely punished Jesus in our place and he paid for our sins in full. It's the reason why the apostle Paul says in verse 15, that despite testing, we will be saved. But the fact that we are saved through fire means that God is going to evaluate the work of every Christian. He isn't talking about non-Christians here. He's talking about people who have placed their faith in Jesus. And he says that not even the godliest Christians is exempt from this evaluation. God is going to take an audit of my shepherding and my pastoring, my pastoring. God is going to audit how I lived my life. God is going to evaluate my marriage. He's going to evaluate the time that I spent this week, whether I had watched a ton of K-pop videos or whether I was working on this message. He is going to rewind the tape on the entirety of my Christian life. And he's going to evaluate whether I did, whether what I did, I did for his kingdom or whether what I did was for my own kingdom. He is going to evaluate to see if I had exalted Jesus in my life, in my speech, in my conduct, in my actions, in my heart, or whether I have exalted myself. He is going to evaluate all the pastors at Lighthouse Community Church. He is going to evaluate the Apostle Paul, Billy Graham, John Calvin, your favorite pastor, you name it. He is going to evaluate the work of the youth staff. And he is going to evaluate you. Now, I was not joking when I said that this is the Apostle Paul's sharpest rebuke yet. To the youth staff, I said earlier that you are not held accountable for the growth of these high school students. You're not. But according to these three verses here, God is going to personally hold you accountable for the quality of your work to these high school students. And I think this will really challenge us because if God is going to personally hold us accountable for the quality of our work, then we won't be able to say, well, it's this other high schooler's fault. Or this person just didn't really believe or uh, we, they didn't really respond. While it's on them, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we doing the best that we possibly can on our own end as youth staff? 
Are we doing the best? Not the most, but the best. Are we kind, patient, loving, persevering? Which is why the Apostle James says that not many of you should become teachers or even people in authority because God is going to hold a stricter judgment for those in higher positions of authority. And I think this, is, this will also challenge the high school students as well. Don't worry, you guys have not escaped the judgment here. Out of all the churches to go to, you go to Lighthouse Community Church where the gospel is preached every Friday, every Sunday. And my question here is, rather, a question that God is going to ask you is, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the gospel? With what material are you building on the foundation that you have received from other people? In what ways are you cultivating and building upon the foundation that others have laid for you? One of the ways that we can enhance the gospel is when we actually live out what we believe. But one of the ways that we eclipse the gospel is when we divide, when we form cliques within the community that God has joined together through his son, the community that Jesus shed his blood to unite. And by our divisions, cliques, groups, attitudes, bitterness, grudges, we are tearing apart the church, Jesus' own body. And a question that I had, that I had, that I had asked about these verses, why, why are these verses in here? Why does Paul include these verses? It's so intense. Well, the Apostle Paul is trying, to sh- is trying to motivate us to see that what we do before God and what happens to this community right here, what, what, what happens to this high school group right here, matters very much to God. I need to move on to the third and final danger, but before I do so, I, I do want to talk about this idea of rewards. We're, we are going to get rewards for the work that we have done, and it's not now, but later, but God does give us glimpses of that kind of reward. Those who build with lasting materials, Paul says that there will be a reward. We don't know what the reward is, but I think it's possible that the reward that we will see is simply the joy and satisfaction of seeing the fruition of our labors. In Thessalonians, uh, in First Thessalonians, chapter two, verses nineteen to twenty, the apostle Paul metaphorically looks at the Thessalonians, his 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 pride and joy. And he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Sometimes we tend to think of reward physically, you know, like a bunch of Nintendo Switches or a ton of money, a new iPhone maybe. But for Paul, the reward was the relationship. It was the time spent investing in people. It was the people that completed his joy. It's the same reason Paul says in Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Which is what makes the third danger the most dangerous, actually. The third danger that would destroy the church is bad faith. Bad faith. Take a look finally at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
Now, it's important to understand that here that when the Apostle Paul says you, it's plural. It's not communicated very clearly uh, in the English. So it's y'all. Um, sorry, I just you know had some Texans living in my house for the past week, and so please forgive me. Um, but the Apostle Paul in later chapters will refer to individual bodies as the temple of God. But here in this verse, here in this passage, he refers to the church exclusively as the temple of the living God. But here is the crazy thing, okay? Paul is writing this letter in, you know, mid, mid-50s AD. And in mid-50s AD, this is decades before the, the temple in Jerusalem is actually destroyed and demolished. In other words, when the Corinthians read this letter, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. If you remember from uh, Jesse's message from, uh, from last Sunday, the, the temple in Jerusalem was the locus. It was the center of God's divine presence in the world. There is no other place in the entire world where the presence of God had rested. But now, now, here in this passage right here, Paul, with the audacity, claims that God has removed his presence from that temple and has now taken up residence in the church. God's temple is no longer a building made of gold, silver, precious stones, but now his temple and his presence is found in the scattering of Jesus' followers all over the world. Wherever the church meets and gathers, there God is. Just as in the Old Testament where God's voice, God's presence, God's glory, God's words was in the temple, now God's voice, God's presence God's glory, God's words is in the church. What does this mean? I don't think any of us have a high enough theology of the church. We together, as a united people of God here at Lighthouse Community Church, are the temple of the living God. We are the place where God manifests his presence and shows up. Never ever forget that when we gather on Sundays, God actually shows up to give us grace through the preaching of his word through the taking of communion. When we gather, when we gather together, God is here. God has chosen to make himself present in the world through a gathering of people called the church, which is actually hilarious because we're not that great of a people. This is why the Apostle Paul uh, P- Peter calls the church a royal priesthood and a holy nation, which is what makes verse 17 so sobering. We need it all of that in verse 16, but it's what makes verse 17 so sobering. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul's words are sobering here. He is saying that if you destroy God's temple, God is going to destroy you. How can you destroy God's temple today? It's when you act in bad faith toward the community of God. Remember that the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians, not non-Christians. The greatest enemy of God's temple, God's people, aren't non-Christians. It's Christians. God's temple is, is destroyed when Christians are not acting like Christians. As messed up as the church is, as imperfect as the church is, as broken as the church is, you do not tear down and slander God's church. Because you destroy God's temple when you exalt and objectify God's servants rather than the one whom whom they point to. 
You destroy God's temple when you are divisive, when you hold bitterness in your heart, when you withhold forgiveness, when you promote yourself, when you gossip behind people's backs, when you hate on other people. When we think that the church is a popularity contest or a social club, you are undermining the very purpose for which Jesus came to die for the church. You don't mess with the people Jesus died for. You don't mess with his bride. And the reality is that we have messed with his bride. We have acted in bad faith toward one another, haven't we? The heart of the matter is that we have been divisive. We have held bitterness. We have gossiped, maybe even slandered others. Maybe some of us have avoided others in this room. And God's word says that God will destroy you and me. But is that God's final word? It's not. Jesse kind of touched on it last Sunday. He stole my thunder. But uh, John chapter 1, there is a specific word that the apostle John uses to describe what Jesus did when he came into this world. He describes Jesus as the word who became flesh and he dwelt among us. The, the Greek word for dwelt here is actually a very interesting word. It's the same word that we use for tabernacle. And I've, I think I've referenced this before. But what John is actually saying here is that the word tabernacled among us. In other words, Jesus is the true temple of God. The fullest manifestation of God. Now, what is, what is the significance of that here? You see, by becoming the temple of God, Jesus would be the person who would make atonement for our sins, for all the ways in which we have teared down the church, for all the ways in which we have tampered with God's temple, for all the ways in which we sinned against God and against one another. And by faith in Jesus, instead of destroying us, God destroyed his temple. God destroyed Jesus on the cross for you and me. And through his resurrection, Jesus would pave the path for us, the church, to be the new temple of God. An an alternative community where we manifest the presence of God in the world. Where we show the world what God is like and what God is up to in this world. And so that in the church, Jesus would be the centerpiece. He would be the cornerstone, the foundation, having preeminence in the church so that no one would be charmed by the status of people because the church is founded on Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray together. Father, these these are serious words. And I do pray that as your spirit would be working in the hearts of these students here and even the staff, that they would be challenged by it, that they would see that what they do actually does matter before you, that there is no act or deed done visibly or even invisibly, a thought that is thought in the heart. All of that will be laid bare. And yet, Lord, at the same time, we're reminded of the fact that there is much, much grace. That's in fact the reason why Jesus came into this world. Grace upon grace. We have received grace upon grace in Jesus who tabernacled among us, became the temple of God, was destroyed for us so that we can be the people whom you've called us to be. And so God, I pray for these high schoolers here 
Pray that you would really challenge them, convict them, but that you would also point them to the hope of the gospel, that there is a God who loves them, who purchased redemption for them, to reconcile them, to redeem them to himself. And so God, we thank you. Uh, we love you so much. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.